I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, uh, you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. I'm Adrian, and with me, of course, is Steve. G'day, guys. And we've got with us today Chris from Bugs and Slugs. Hello, Chris. Hey. Now, Chris, you have a little business called Bugs and Slugs, and you basically roam around the country educating people about the environment through invertebrates. Well, I try to do that, yeah. Why invertebrates? They're a little and insignificant. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm not averse to vertebrates. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But I've come to realise that behind every good vertebrate is a greater invertebrate. How so? Well, I think the success of the vertebrates really rides on the back of the invertebrates because they do all the dirty work. All the dirty wow. work. Well, they do. They do. Yeah, I mean, they do some of the romantic work too. Like they, they do all the pollination or the vast majority of it. They do all of the recycling in nature or the vast majority of it. They do, you know, they keep the oceans clean. They filter the water. They deal with the pest control. Don't, sorry to interrupt there, don't dolphins keep the ocean clean? They've got Stop the big it. brain. Isn't that what they're doing? Are <laughs> <laughs> uh, you going to make me say things about dolphins I'll regret? <laughs> I don't think you could say something about a dolphin you'd regret, surely. Well, I do have this theory that people are, you know, overly attached to dolphins. They're, they're charismatic megafauna that I'm not saying they're not lovely. In a former life, I was a marine ecologist and I had to, um, you know, hang out with dolphins a bit. And I'm not saying they're not lovely, but we have perhaps over-romanticised the dolphin as a, as a life form. You know, if you understand a bit about their reproductive strategies, which are quite brutal, to say the least. They, they describe it as gang rape. I it's believe. pretty much, mm. pretty much like, you know, um, it's, it's pretty brutal. So, so, so often the, the reason female dolphins are hanging out in pods in estuaries and sheltered, protected areas, um, apart from the fact that that's an obvious place to raise a calf or whatever, it's also a, a, a good place to escape the presence of male dolphins who come in in big packs, single out a female and take her off, mm. off uh, you know, out into deeper water. and um, bru- bru- It's really brutal. I, I was told that when I went to Flinders University. Um, I was accepted on a, for a degree there, animal behaviour. And that's one of the things that they told us when, when we, there was a big presentation and they said things that you understand about a dolphin and then it was things that you don't know about a dolphin and that it was literally just all about that side of it like, yeah yeah so yeah. so people you know i mean I, I often come across people we, we live down in an area of adelaide where there is an estuary down in port adelaide and and that's also the estuary that i used to work in for a really long time and um you know i often go down there just to sort of you know convene with nature and uh, there's there's nearly always there'll be someone sitting on the end of the jetty like seriously meditating and convening with the dolphins um and they do come (laughs) don't laugh it's a real thing and they do come right up to the to the jetty and stuff but um you know mostly because their behavior is modified by people fishing and throwing in fish offal into the water and Mm. um you know it's not really because they love you and they feel spiritually connected to you well that in my opinion it's not in my opinion there's not a lot of evidence to support that um there is, however, some evidence to support the idea that you can change their behaviour by feeding them. Mm, and so, you know... What about that documentary series I grew up watching? What was it called? Flipper? Flipper, yes. <laughs> it was Flipper. 
They were saving lives. He was saving lives. Well, that, you can, dolphins are intelligent. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're, you know, they have a particular kind of intelligence that I think is the sort of intelligence humans can relate to. It's a relatively selfish inheritance <laughs> that's easy to manipulate with rewards-based training. Um, but getting back to the, the initial comment, which was about invertebrates, the reason I love invertebrates is because even you know there's no denying no matter how much you love dolphins you can't really save the dolphins if you don't save the invertebrates first because dolphins i think the estimate is that dolphins need about 20 kilos of fish a day which sounds phenomenal doesn't it but you know they're pretty big dolphins so i guess that's Mm, that's, i'm probably not making that up there's a chance i could be but i'm I'm probably not um (laughs) Yeah, and so if you think about what, you know, when we say fish in inverted commas, we don't necessarily just mean vertebrate fish because we know that dolphins eat a lot of other species as well, um, jellyfish and squid and, you know, cuttlefish, that sort of thing. Which aren't fish. And Which aren't fish, they're invertebrates. So, you know, or, or snails, if you like, or jellyfish aren't snails, but cuttle, cuttlefish and squid are snails. Um, so the the jellyfish which are cnidarians i think so they're related to sea anemones and stuff like that um all of those creatures are invertebrates so there's a direct link to dolphins and invertebrates there but the other issue for me is that dolphins you know they're they're like humans in a way in that they rely on other species to maintain their habitat they don't really do much habitat maintenance they they just swan around and eat fish and poo a lot to be fair they don't have thumbs they don't have thumbs no um so you know they're they're not quite as good as we are but um but at the end of the day they need all of those other species to keep the water clean they they don't do that they like i said they they fish and they poo a lot so without you know if if there were just a whole heap of dolphins swimming around in the ocean that that ecosystem would collapse very quickly because it's the invertebrates that you know, maintain the health of the ecosystem. So you think they're cashing in on the hard work of a little man? Oh, absolutely. Most most vertebrate species are, I think. You know, that's that's how it works. That's what a food web is, I guess. It's that, that hierarchy of, you know, yeah. we make the garbage, you collect the garbage, you recycle the garbage, and then we eat you. So vertebrates are a good tool to talk about the foundation of the ecosystem where most people just want to look at the cute, fluffy, iconic species or the particular reptile they're into. Yeah. You're suggesting that these guys... I want to look at those things too, but I want to, I want to maintain a context. You know, when I, think about, when I think about something cute and fluffy, I, I want to understand that cute and fluffy thing in context with, its, with the rest of its environment. And the rest of its environment is, you know, um, often not even visible we don't we don't notice it like you think about something something as humble as a mealworm which for people who aren't in australia that's what we call the larva of any kind of tenebrid beetle really we call a mealworm so that's um you know the darkling beetles or the pie dish beetles even even things like those egyptian beetles that you know and introduce pest species there a tenebrid beetle as well so they all have a larva that looks like a hard little yellow caterpillar that lives in the soil and um and people have made in fact you probably you guys probably know people who've made a lot of money breeding those particular larva because of the number of captive species that 
uh, eat them. So there's people uh, just madly breeding tenebrid beetle larva. And lots of people, you know, when I go to schools and I show kids the beetles, often they, they've, they've all seen a mealworm, but they've never, often never seen the adult. They've never kind of put it into context and gone, oh, that's, that's a larva, like a caterpillar is a larva, and that larva is going to grow up and become a beetle. And then if you think about, oh, what, what is a beetle? Ultimately, a quarter of the species on Earth are a beetle. So they've got to be doing something pretty important, don't they? A quarter of all living animals? A quarter of all living species. All living species. So if you... uh, And I I think that's one of those generalisations that can't possibly include bacteria and viruses because I'm really hard-pressed to accept that it could include them and still come out at those numbers but if you if you line up all the living things on our planet um and i've looked into this and apparently it is like you know plants and animals but um someone will correct me if i'm wrong um yeah so if you line up all the living things on our planet and you think about how many how many people would be in that line if you're lining up all the different species of living things so how many how many of those living things would be a person and obviously that's one because there's only one species of per- – well, we only recognise one species of human um, currently alive. So uh, one person would be in that line. How many beetles would be in that line? Every fourth thing would be a beetle. That's amazing. So that's wow. pretty full on, isn't it, right? And that, that's not including – so you can assume that um, – you know, that probably three out of four things in that line would have to be insects. Just And I'm just, just talking insects, you know. Insects are probably 80% of all the living things on our planet. Why are beetles so successful, do you think? Oh. I think because they, they you know, there's so many different beetles. And it's, a, and it's a bit of, you know, sometimes I wonder whether the way we... You know, we, we've we've created a, a taxonomic hierarchy based on, you know, the, the similarities and the differences between different living things. But sometimes I wonder if that even matters. Like it matters in terms of like scientifically being able to categorise things. But sometimes I wonder if we're too involved in categorising things to actually miss the, you know, the important information, which is, is looking intrinsically at, individual species and thinking about not necessarily why is this species a beetle but but why is this species full stop question mark question mark full stop um you know so like i i think beetles if you think about beetles there are aquatic beetles there are carnivorous beetles so so aquatic but they live their whole life in water or they have a stage in water uh well most aquatic beetles uh, sort of have their whole their whole life cycle involves water. Certainly, their eggs are laid in water. Their uh, larva are aquatic. Mostly, when they're adult, they generally pupate in the water. Mostly, when they're adults, though, most aquatic beetles that I know of can fly, so they they don't necessarily spend their entire life in the water because they can fly between water sources. Um, now, that's not to say that they all do. 
I know I've been um, I've been out in the middle of Australia. A friend of mine has a station out there, K Runner, a station. It's it's big and it's you know remote. It's very isolated, and um, they've we were out there one time and it it was raining. There were big floods. It was those big massive floods in Queensland that um, you know filled the Derwent River and was was pretty full on, and um, this cloud of water beetles just descended on the station like and they were thick like you could you know you could scoop them up in your hands and um and they they we learned pretty quickly not to because they bite but um, (laughs) but they were just you could you could um and along with strangely enough in the same kind of influx of things falling from the sky were all of these longer horn beetles which also bite and so the the whole station around the station house and they have two big they call them tanks but we we would probably call them dams um they had two big tanks just outside the station house and um you know it was hard to say whether those beetles they couldn't possibly have all come from those tanks um but yeah they descended like a, a cloud and then there was like carpets of them and then two days later they were gone but yeah so they they were water beetles but they were um water beetles that could fly wow so they just had a small window of opportunity for their yeah and presumably that would have triggered some breeding event or you know something like that that, as a beetle they wouldn't really be interested in feeding it would just be about yeah they i I actually collected some and brought them back to adelaide and they were carnivorous the, the adult beetles were so there are there are beetles that don't feed as adults um, not not too many most most beetles are, are feeding throughout mm. their life cycle but um, yeah so that you know so there are aquatic beetles there are carnivorous beetles so beetles that you know their whole of their life cycle involves um, eating other bugs and some of those you know might be very long lived i know uh, you've interviewed um mark hura on this program and um we're quite interested in ground beetles different different areas of ground he's more interested in the taxonomy of ground beetles i'm more interested in um keeping ground beetles in c- captivity and so there's a, a fairly large um genus of uh, a genus of large ground beetles called the uriscaphius and um they come from Alice Springs, and I've I've gotten very good at keeping them. I haven't been able to breed them yet, and I think their life cycle probably involves some kind of parasitic element to it, where they they may be. I'm I'm really guessing about this, but I think they. My where I'm feeling at the moment is that they might they they seem to be associated with ants, um, like as in the beetles often live in ants' nests or somehow involved with ants. So I think they might actually uh, somehow, uh, when they lay their eggs, I think their larva might feed on ant pupa or ant larva somehow. And um, then I think maybe, maybe, maybe it's impossible to breed them without also having an ant nest for them to, to breed in. But Mark thinks that they could live, you know, we're always talking about, oh, they're still alive. And... Um, so the first ones, as I get better and better at keeping them, the first ones we got uh, lived for you know a year or two, and then the next ones, the next ones I got lived for 
sort of three or four years and now I'm on my next lot and they've got they've shown no signs of sort of slowing I've got three of them at the moment one pair and one single male so, one one lonely male so when you say about the the, the ants is that because other beetles do that is that why your feeling's gone that way um yeah there's a beetle in there's a, a ground beetle somewhere in America I think I think they call it no I can't remember what they call it it's like the devil's beetle or something like that and um I, I was watching a David Attenborough special. I've heard of him. Yeah. Do you know him? He's he's a film guy. Yeah. Some old guy. He's an old guy. Makes films. Um, anyway, he yeah he he was um, he was showing this beetle that that is a ground beetle and it um, its larva climb up onto the stalk of a flower. Uh, where they uh, then produce, I think they produce a pheromone to attract a, a wasp that may or may not pollinate said flower. And then when the wasp comes down to pollinate the flower, they climb aboard it um, and then they hitch a ride back to the wasp nest. And obviously it's a parasitic wasp because vast majority of wasps are. And um, when the wasp then uh, heads back to its nest to pr- pr- lay more eggs or whatever, um, they jump off and hop inside the chamber that the wasp produces and then the larva complete their life cycle by by becoming parasites of the wasp larva and then uh, what hatches out of that mm. wasp thing, a wasp egg, <laughs> is um, a beetle. Yeah, so so I thought, ah, oh, that's it. That's the that's the missing link because um, and I say that not you know because I'm I'm getting pretty good at breeding some pretty weird beetles. We've got enough to play with in Australia to keep us fairly fairly busy for some time. Um, but I just haven't been able to crack it with these, and I've been able to mate them. I've been able to um, you know, work out what the who are the males and who are the females, and I've got a little mate. Um, Ethan, I should stop calling him little because he's, <laughs> he's not that little. <laughs> he's six foot two and eighteen now. He's just written his first paper, but um, yeah, he, you know, he and I have. Um, his his dad's been instrumental in acquiring some of these beetles for us, and um, yeah, and he and I have sort of spent hours watching them and working out who not to put with who. You know, they they lead each other if you if if they don't like each other, they they exhibit some pretty aggressive behaviours. Um, yeah, and so we've, you know, we know we've taken photos of them mating, so we know that we we know that that has to be a male and that has to be a female. Um, it's very difficult to sex them unless you see them mating. Although I think we've sort of, I feel like I can sort of look at them now and go, oh, I think that's a female and I think that's a male. The females are a little bit wider; they have a slightly wider abdomen. But um, yeah, Mark told me that he suspects this is my. <laughs> very long story getting to the point which is that he thinks that those particular beetles could live for 40 to 60 years maybe wow. mm. which makes my three years not seem all that not very successful successful I, yeah. <laughs> I want to say i'm more successful than anyone else that has kept them um but yeah but but so, so you're not getting eggs off them at that point haven't managed to get them to lay eggs we've we've seen them do some really weird things and it's it's you know it's like um it's a bit of an ecological puzzle because it's like any of these things you know trying to work out what they do or how they do it 
even though I display inverts and, you know, take them to science shows and um, my personal passion is captive breeding. That's my sort of, because in Australia we've got a lot of things and, and beetles will be next. You know, we've got a lot of species like tarantulas and scorpions that people are just ripping them off out of yeah. protected areas. They don't care. These people that... Um, want them don't care whether they're collecting from protected areas or whether they're not you know and for some of these things i think people think that uh little things lead little lives you know but we know that some of the tarantulas could easily live you know certainly the females could easily live for 30 years and i think that's probably a fairly conservative estimate um when you read about scorpions, you read that scorpions, you know, scorpions probably live for 15 years, but I've had scorpions longer than that. So I know that that's mm. certainly a conservative estimate. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those Eurydacus, you know, some of those um, desert scorpions, you think about the Australian desert for people listening who might not be familiar with the Australian desert, it is like a slow motion it's hardcore, you know, and um, it, it absolutely would not surprise me if there are Eurydacus out in the middle of the desert that just hole into their little burrow and sit there for 40 years waiting for the rain. You know, it just wouldn't surprise me at all um, because I, I can see that they live their lives in slow motion almost, you know. They, their, their whole concept of time, I think, is, is yeah. you know, because time is relative to your to your experience of it. Mm. And I think um, some of those things probably have a really different experience of time. They can slow themselves down when it when it matters or speed themselves up when it matters. So I think it's no surprise to me that people, people living in our time, on our time scale, just go out to the desert and go, oh, I really want a tarantula. I don't want to wait 15 years to grow a really big one or, you know, I don't want to... I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't quite fathom the market that exists for tarantulas and scorpions because oh, I've had the same one for 13 years, so I'm not sure why people need, <laughs> you know, like I know that if you're constantly buying them and I go to your house and you don't have a wall of them, then you're also constantly killing them, yeah. you know, and, and we know the same thing happens with reptiles as well, um, you know, I've... I've I've read about the longevity of, of things like bearded dragons. I had a bearded dragon for 15 years. Um, that came to me as a rescue, so it was an adult when it came to me. It lived for 15 years, and without going into it, it, it ended its life through an accident, not through not through um, attrition or anything. Mm. So, you know, I, I'd be very surprised if they don't, achieve really really lengthy mm. lifespans well, reptile related yeah you're right like years ago it was a big industry because everyone killed their reptiles no one knew how to look after them i think that's getting better now um europe and america for insects especially or, or for sorry for tarantulas for scorpions yep. huge industry oh yeah and here huge. too yep. there's people who you know you, it doesn't take you don't have to be a rocket science to go, mm. okay, well, I know that species occurs in this fairly limited area. The vast majority of that species range is within protected areas. So if you've got 100 of them 
and everybody says they're, they're captive bred, but none of them are. Mm. I know that for a fact. Like, none of them are. There's very little evidence to support the idea that anybody is breeding anything other than first-generation captive scorpions. So what, what I mean by that is that if somebody says their scorpion's captive bred, what they mean is they collected a female f- from the wild, she gave birth, and they then reared those babies, you know, for a year or two, but probably not because people don't have the patience for that. You know, a scorpion's probably going to be three years old before it's even close to a size that anybody is interested in parting with any any money for. So it's, uh, I think it's a really big future issue because at the moment I think we have this this idea about Australia that, that, that it's a bottomless pit of... Um, certainly of invertebrates it's probably changing a bit with vertebrates because you know we've pretty much stuffed them up but but the invertebrates will be next and i'm not particularly i do have tarantulas i never display them i'm not you know i don't mind them but i'm not i've I've got some in a trade and so i've got i've got 20 of them in the lounge room but they're, they're pretty much all the same species and um they don't really float my boat but but they they were captive bred and you can captive breed tarantulas there's a a woman down in port adelaide tracy who does a very good job of captive breeding them but the vast majority of tarantulas that people buy are mature tarantulas that have been wild caught along with whatever viruses or you know whatever else they've got and yeah and that's what people want so i think the next the beetles will be next in um in Australia, we've got some pretty amazing beetles, and it would seem that the more amazing they are and the more interesting they are to keep, the harder they are to breed. So, you know, um, I guess the rainbow stag beetles, which you you would have seen, Adrian, because I often yep. dis- I often display one. <laughs> Don't display because I can't afford um, you know I can't afford to have 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 them stolen or. You know, the, the truth is that if you're in a situation when you're displaying stuff, if you're in a situation where one of your inverts is going to die, potentially that means they're all going to die. You know, like if, if you're in a situation where someone hasn't told you that there's a plug-in insect killing device or that they've, you know, they thought that they'd clean things up before you got there so they've surface sprayed the whole... You know, I've had that happen in hotel rooms where I've rung ahead and I've said, oh, yeah, I'm... I'm bugs and slugs and I'm, you know, I'm coming to visit some schools and is it okay, you know, some of my bugs need to be inside, they can't, you know, they can't sleep in the car. Um, yeah, so so is it all right if I bring them into the hotel room? And before I get there, they've surface sprayed everything because they think <laughs> that's going to, you know, like, yeah, no, that happened to me once. I, I, um, I lost all my cockroaches through that happening so you know it's i have to be really careful Mm. around hygiene in hotel rooms i don't touch any surfaces and then touch my bugs i don't let anything i wouldn't ever get anything out in a hotel room and handle it in the hotel room just in case i expose it to Mm. something like that but is it something that's becoming more popular people keeping invertebrates absolutely yeah yeah i think um so bugs and slugs has been running now for about maybe about 12, 13 years, 
feels like longer than that, but I think it's, uh, what are we, 2018, so yeah, like 13, 14 years. And I know that we bought the first spiny leaf insects to South Australia. So if you think that's not very long ago, 13 years ago, you, you, when I displayed spiny leaf insects, which is um, Extatostoma tiaratum, for anyone listening who cares about that stuff, um, so we bought the first <laughs> we know ones. He's out there. <laughs> one guy. <laughs> we bought the first ones to South Australia, and um, they just were not. You know, they didn't have them at the zoo. They didn't have them. Um, you couldn't buy them in pet shops. Any of that stuff. And when I, when we first used to display them, people were just blown away by them. Like they would be completely freaked out because they'd never seen anything like them before and for for people listening they're a, a leaf insect so they belong to the phasmodea that's their um order and they're um th- they look a little bit like a very spiky dead leaf don't they absolutely I, they're, they're I think, probably yeah. one of the most impressive insects in the world they, they are pretty impressive i, I mean we, we sort of probably take them for granted now and that's yeah. my point is that these days when you uh when i display them people go oh yeah we got them at school Mm. Oh, yeah, I've seen them. I've I got one of them as a pet. You go or... to your local pet shop, there's yeah. 100 in a little tank there. Yeah. <laughs> so people always want something different, don't they? Mm. They want to get the next cool thing. <laughs> they do. But, you know, getting back to the way Australian species are, are exploited, you know, there's a, um, a fabulous, uh, well, leaf insect, I guess. It's a phasmid, um, Phyllium montethii. Now, the, the philiums are probably known throughout the world because there's quite a few of them they all look quite similar um so there's uh, philium giganteum which is like the the Thai leaf insect and it's like a big flat green leaf um and most tropical tropical-esque countries will have a a version of a philium um and you know if you go to the the insect house in singapore they've they've got a massive display of them and you know people often often think they're fabulous um so australia has a philium as well philium montethii and um philium montethii was first recorded you know more than 100 years ago like probably about 110 years ago now um so what's that 1908 or something like that and it was recorded you know up in karanda or um, up up that way so we're talking tropical tropical north of australia um, up in Queensland, and um, then it was about another 104 years before it was recorded again. So people weren't sure whether that first recording was, you know, just a, a fly-by-night philium that had been brought over from New Guinea by a sailor, or because that stuff obviously happened in Australia before quarantine um, stepped in. And yeah, so people weren't really sure about this leaf insect. Anyway, it was re refound quite by accident uh, a, a phasmid enthusiast was you know harvesting some leaves and uh, harvested some lily pili or sesisgium which is the main food plant of philium and uh, bought that sesisgium inside noticed a, a funny smell which is probably now that we recognize that smell that's probably the easiest way to actually identify philium is to shake the tree and, and wait for that smell of you know dirty socks <laughs> dirty socks and blue cheese and um yeah and and bought that in and from 
that individual was then able to go, oh, okay, this is their food plant, was then able to source uh, another individual. I think that was a female and it produced, you know, um, mated eggs because phasmids can produce, most of them can produce sexually or asexually. So it produced mated eggs and from those mated eggs um, that person uh, was able to grow another generation of males and females and and. Uh, worked a little bit on working out how to find them in the wild and found a couple of others so you know the genetics were quite robust and I was very fortunate because I, I, I knew her so she then sent me a couple of eggs uh, for for an exorbitant amount of money like you know $150 an egg well. So I sold a child and bought um, three eggs. Good on you. And, yeah. No, I didn't really. I, did, I didn't have one to sell. But, um, but I, you know, took out a mortgage on my house and um, bought these three eggs. And so I was very fortunate because, you know, she had a very stringent list of who she would allow to buy eggs. And so there were three of us in Australia who were the first people to get this particular uh, species. But by the time my eggs had hatched someone in germany had them as well good old germans so you know so there's there's like gotta be i think the trade in australian invertebrates is phenomenal already i mean if you're not in that world you don't you know you, you wouldn't be aware of it but I was saying to Adrian earlier that there, there's things I breed, like, and bizarrely, they're, they're cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of beetles, like rainbow stag beetles. They, you know, if I, if I, because I breed rainbow stag beetles, Phallocognathus um, mulleri, um, and they, they, you know, command pretty high prices overseas if, if, um, if you can get hold of them. But I, I'm, I'm not remotely interested in giving up any of my you know i wouldn't give them up to the next door neighbor let alone <laughs> send them overseas um but, and obviously our quarantine laws in australia prevent that but um the rainbow stag beetles are pretty interesting they're very long lived for a for a stag beetle they live for a couple of years and they um but they're hard to breed they 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 lay their eggs in white rotten wood and they, the larva feed on the mycelium uh in the in the wood so the, the roots of fungus, basically. There's only a few species of wood and a few species of fungus that they, you know, that they'll eat. So breeding them is a bit of a process because you've got to grow the white rot infected wood and rada, rada, rada. They're actually better at it overseas than we are here. There's only a couple of us doing it here in Australia, whereas in Japan it's, you know, it's a massive hobby. You can go to a supermarket and you can buy a Mulleri larva in the, in the beetle section of a supermarket. That's the rainbow stag. Beetle. Yeah, yeah. You can buy a live larva and and any stag beetle you like. I, I guess for um, as we become more overpopulated and people are living in small apartments, a oh, cat yeah. or a cat or a dog isn't always the best move. Mm-hmm. Maybe a rainbow stag beetle. Oh, they're they're great. Well, that's why they're great pets. Like reptiles and yeah, absolutely yep. insects as well. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and, and they're not as even though they're they're little. Even though they're quite small, rainbow stag beetles, there's a, there's a lot to be, you know, there's a lot to be had from them, I think, in that they're, you know, when you get into breeding them, you can start selecting colours and you can start playing around with, you know, sizes. And mm. um, and even though you sort of think, oh, 
they're, they're only tiny. They they stand out a fair bit. They're very beautiful. Color. I mean, I lost one once for five days at Bunnings at Parafield, and it flat literally it flew off. <laughs> and I had to say to them, "You didn't have it tethered." <laughs> no, I didn't have a lid on it or anything because normally they just sort of sit there. And um, this thing in in a couple of years, I've still got the same one. Um, in in the few years that I'd had him, he'd never flown. Like he'd, he'd never f- flown. And, um, but, you know, the lights were warm and it was a really thundery, overcast day, and, but it was quite warm as well. So it was like tropical heaven for a, for a tropical beetle. And, um, and I didn't see him fly off. I just assumed because he wasn't in the box. Um, and I hadn't seen anyone who looked like they might take him. You know, like I've, I've got this idea that no, I can no tell. No one with a balaclava. No one, <laughs> I didn't get a letter in tiny writing, you know, Cut holding my beetle to ransom. Yeah. <laughs> no clues. Um, so I just had to say to the Bunnings people, look, if anybody finds it, can you give me a call? And five days later I got a call saying, oh, someone's just found your beetle in the cafe. <laughs> We've been shut down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and luckily, and I sort of thought, you know, if it had been any of my other beetles um, that are less colourful and I think people would have not noticed, they would have just gone, oh, that's just a beetle. But a rainbow stag beetle is... A cockroach. Oh. It's pretty hard to miss. Yeah. Well, some of the some of the cockroaches that are, you know, that's what I was going to say. There's cockroaches I breed that I, I don't really post them on my Facebook page much anymore because... If I do, I guarantee you I will get messages from people overseas, generally not Australians. We don't care about cockroaches. We're like, oh, cockroaches. <laughs> but um, there's people overseas, particularly the metallic cockroaches um, and some of the very colourful cockroaches like the Mitchell's cockroach. Um, yeah, people will send me pretty, pretty firm requests for... For, to send them cockroaches and trying to explain yeah. to them that, you know, all well, this is, even if it wasn't illegal, I live in a country where the distance between me and the habitat of this cockroach is more than a thousand kilometres. Someone flew in a plane and, you know, or it came back in someone's camping gear from a place that I'm never likely to visit. Um, I'm, I'm hardly going to send it to you. It represents the last five years of my life. Mm. You know, breeding this thing or working this thing out, I'm really hardly likely to send it to you. But they don't get it. They don't get that sort of distance. But if you were massively successful with them in the future, I don't mean for overseas people, but you would release them. Uh, sometimes you have to. So sometimes what I do, like with the um, rainbow stag beetles, sometimes you have to share progeny because it's it's not. It, it's just not possible to you know to keep everything that you breed so um so with the rainbow stag beetles there were a group of us who um decided that we were pretty keen to try and nut out the breeding we sort of were a little bit taken aback that you know they could breed them really well in japan and there is a guy in queensland steve his name is and he um has a license to breed them yeah, not you he has a license to breed them and to export them yeah um so it, it can be done yeah. um i just don't have those licenses that doesn't interest me I, I probably could pursue that if i wanted to but i'm i'm a bit too selfish to care about whether other people have them i, I hope that you're majorly successful with it you can 
fill up Australia with them and then start sending them abroad so that people are not going out in the wild and taking some well, of these a, insects that the might thing, be 40 yeah. years old. Mm. Like, and you're taking something that's done that amount of time in the wild. Survive yeah. that long. So you, you get what I'm saying, yes. right, about the little little things don't necessarily lead little little lives. Mm. Like, yeah. Like, I've, I, he's, he's, I have to say he's, I don't have it anymore because it did die eventually. But, you know, I mentioned my friends on K-Runner Station and I collected a centipede when I was there. And this is what really started my kind of, oh, hang on a minute, kind of mindset, I suppose, was I collected this centipede and... I didn't think much of it. It's a centipede, you know, and there's millions of them in Australia. And it, but it was a very attractive centipede, you know, one of those big tiger stripy centipedes and, you know, quite, quite aggressive. And I think we had it for 13 years. It, it only died last year or maybe the year before. Um, and that made me go, Wow wow i just had no idea I, it had occurred to me that scorpions probably live a really long time i i knew that tarantula female tarantulas were you know well documented as living a really long time um and we saw tarantulas out there crossing the road that were the size of small cats <laughs> was a, we saw a tarantula on our way to k runnera um you know because it's about 400 k's or something on 300 k's out of broken hill and um yeah we 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 saw a tarantula crossing the road that was the biggest thing i've ever seen in my life i've never seen i've never seen a picture of one that big i've never seen you know it was enormous and and i talked to some of the kids i'd gone up there to do this um school of the air mini school and for for people who don't know much about Australia, School of the Air is um, if you live in a remote area like a station, a sheep station, um, school's too far to travel, so they do School of the Air, which, um, you know, when my mate Taz was little, School of the Air was, like, done on a pedal radio. <laughs> and this was, like, you know, this wasn't, like, in the 50s. This was, like, in the in the 70s. You know, they, the technology took a long time to get to the outback. Now they have the internet and broadband and stuff. They they at least can do school of the air on computer, which is a bit easier. It's in real time, whereas it wasn't even really in real time when Taz was a kid. So he did school of the air and his kids did school of the air. And we went out there. We were invited to take our bugs and slugs out there to do this school of the air mini school. And um, that's when all of the school of the air kids come together um, at someone's house and stations are often set up to house lots of people, you know, during shearing time they might have back in the day, not not so much now, but back in the day they'd have had, you know, 50 people there for shearing. Not shearing the people, obviously. <laughs> people shearing the sheep. And, um, yeah, so they're often really well set up to, you know, to house a lot of people. And um, so this school of the air mini school, these kids flew in in helicopters and planes and, you know, the next door neighbours came from, you know, 130 kilometres. <laughs> like that's yeah, next That's next door, you know. Is, oh, yeah, we're 200 k's away. We're the next door neighbours, you know. And um, so these kids came from everywhere and they were just the most brilliant kids, like really, you know, really full of amazing stories of like giant worms and you know, really cool stuff. They just had a massive rain event, like I mentioned. And um, 
yeah, and they, they, they were full of, you know, stories that were really easy to verify on the station records, like, oh, I'll go back to the station records and see if the last time there was this much rain, uh, did anyone find giant worms in that place, you know, in that spot? And sure enough, they, they had, you know. But, um, yeah, when I mentioned this tarantula and I said to them, this might have actually been the second visit when it had also rained, I seem to bring the rain with me wherever I go. Um, I think the tarantula was we saw it on the second visit because I was I, I was with a, a friend of mine from uni who I said, "Oh, come and do this mini school with me. You'll you'll love it." <laughs> she was she was pretty blown away. She'd never been out out there before, and um, yeah, and we saw this tarantula. And when I said to the kids, "Look, you know, it's probably going to sound like I'm making this up, but..." I saw a tarantula and it was the size of a dinner plate. And I don't mean a bread and butter plate, I mean a dinner plate. And I, I didn't think we had anything that big in Australia. And they just said, oh, yeah, see them all the time. <laughs> and it was probably, you know, probably Selenotypus or Tippus or um, Selenocosmia, one of, the, one of that genus of tarantulas. But I'm, like I said, I'm not really a tarantula person, but... If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I, I just would not have believed it. That's citizen science right there. Yeah, so you can understand how people want, you know, want specimens of those mm. those kind of spiders. But, um, but you can also sort of understand how if what you're going to do is, you know, not understand that this might be an animal you have to leave to somebody in your will, mm. then don't get it. Mm. You know, don't don't get it because it's better off out where it belongs. And the chances are that big one that you saw would have been a good Old. age. Yeah. yeah. Bloody good age. You'd have to assume. Yeah. And 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 what worries me is that um you know, because I, I know there's some people who are of the opinion that, oh, it doesn't matter, There's scorpions are abundant, you can take as many as you like, you're not really going to impact. But I, I don't agree. Eventually you will, you know, like especially if what you do to begin with is you go out there and the, the tarantulas you're collecting are all 50 years old and so you knock off that cohort. And so then you go back and, um, you know, you're, you're only able to collect the, the tarantulas that are 45 years old and then you knock off that cohort and then what looks like a big tarantula is a little bit like what happened with, you know, Mulloway or um, what are those big fish in the Coorong? Yeah, Not in the Coorong, um, in the Murray? Murray Cod. Mm. You know, like a Murray Cod. Back in the day, in my grandparents' time, a big Murray Cod was three metres long. And a big mulloway yeah, was big three mulloway. metres long. Oh, it's, it's funny but a big mulloway now would be yeah. 40 centimetres. Yeah. People, would, people would be getting their photo in the paper now yeah. if they caught a Murray, if they caught a Murray cod, yeah. <laughs> let alone well, if they yeah, caught a Murray cod. <laughs> yeah, funny about the fishing side. We, we, like my first couple of years here was always out to try and catch legal-sized brim yep. out of the rivers. and, and, and Hard to good. do. But then when you catch them, and like I read up on them a little bit two years after I was trying to catch them, any legal brim are probably 15 to 18 years, years old. old. Yeah. Even whiting, yeah. even a legal size whiting uh, is going to be like 12 years old, I reckon. Yeah. 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 It's crazy, yeah, so isn't it? it? Yeah, with, with the brim. I've not, I've not actually been brim fishing for probably five years. Yeah, because you, you, because don't, you don't think about it. You think some of those Murray Cod that 
you know, that, that people used to catch and they were the length of a person mm. and they're few and far between now and I, I'm not real sure how anyone could live with themselves pulling mm. one of them out of the water now. People do, obviously. Some people think it's their, it's their given right God-given to right to... But, yeah, that when you look at ages of these animals, it's crazy. It is, isn't it? Mm. I, I, yeah. I really do think so. Yeah. And if you, if you think about... And that, that's my mission with some of the, the captive breeding stuff is that, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to live long enough to, to see the, some of this damage undone. And, it, and, and it, you know, remember that saying about, you know, like, oh, we're like frogs in boiling water. If you put a frog in a cold pot of water and start to boil it, the frog won't jump out when the water gets too hot because they won't notice that the water's incrementally becoming warmer. And I think, you know, we are like that. Um, but I think it's like that with the way we're impacting on our wildlife. Um, a very long time ago, you know, I will admit to being a tiny little bit quirky, but um, about 25 years ago, I became interested in roadkill and I started just... (laughs) (laughs) Now, come on. I'm going to stop it here. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, roadkill is is really interesting. I always stop for roadkill. um, Snake or something. Well, well, you can tell a lot about a, a... you can tell a lot about a population. I was in a position where I was driving. I used to work in a place called – I used to run a place called the St Kilda Mangrove Trail. You can Google that if you want. Um, it's a boardwalk through a mangrove forest. And to get there, I'd, um, you know, sort of one road in and one road out. And I, I travelled that road. I, I ran that place for 10 years and I travelled that road on a daily basis for 10 years. Um, I pretty much worked seven days a week. And I, um, you know, and, that, and that's the joy of doing what, what we do is you, you can work every single day. doesn't matter because you just doesn't feel like work, does it? No. So when you say that to people, oh, well, I pretty much work seven days a week. And they go, oh, you did not. And you think, well, no, I did because it didn't even feel like work. Like, you know, if I, if I thought oh, I've got this barbecue to go to or I could go to work or I get paid to walk around a forest and talk to people about ecology I'd do that in a heartbeat you know so I pretty much um I pretty much worked all the time and even when I lived out there for a time I still traveled that road every day and I started realizing very quickly this is not rocket science when you travel the same road you start seeing patterns in roadkill and if you start um getting out and looking at roadkill you can start predicting, you, know, you can make very strong predictions about um, animal populations based on roadkill. So it became very obvious to me that um, people uh, were, were seemed to me to be really a, a tragedy that all these mostly eastern brown snakes and bearded dragons were being, um, you know, were, were succumbing to, to roadkill. And um, that seemed like a tragedy to me because it was very clear and apparent that that it was extremely predictable that you know um sometime around anywhere from mid august to late september um they were going to start appearing on the road and that at that time and you you guys will know more about this than me because you you care about reptiles um i care about patterns 
So um, I could see that anywhere from mid-August to late September, the, the first brown snakes and the first beardies would appear on the road. They were nearly always, the dead ones were nearly always males, nearly always, nearly always young. So, you know, males in their sort of first or second year of maturity. And I put that down to the fact that probably those young males didn't have an established territory and were probably roaming, looking for mates, you know, early in the season, trying to sort of get, I, I want to say get their end in. Get, get their ends in, really, because they got two of them. Um, but, yeah. Um, Should have ended it when I had the chance. <laughs> Sorry. It was only a matter of time. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. yeah, so, and and you can correct me here because you, you could probably add more to this conversation than, than my brain can, but it seemed to me that it was entirely predictable that at that particular time there was a lot of activity of those two species on the road and that it was therefore, if it was that predictable, it was therefore really easy to avoid them. Mm. You know, that if we had the appropriate signage and, you know, probably didn't need to be up all year round, but if we had the appropriate sort of signage and and people were, you know, um, educated about it, that um, we didn't need to be running over huge populations of of reptiles at that time of the year but no one did anything about it and yeah i see a lot of around september time and when the snakes and lizards are on the move a lot of the reptile catchers on their facebook pages will put up you know look out we're on the move that yeah. kind of thing that's when they're starting to go out and yeah you know, look for their mates look for their new places to go so. yeah but you're right though if you see one roku animal you're going to see several and it's same with fledging birds around the same time too you get a lot of fledging yep. birds out of course yeah they're on the ground for the first stage of their yep. life people rescue them people rescue rescue mm. them i mean and a lot of them do get killed by cats and that's nature um, yep. but yeah they get rescued can never be released and end up in a cage but yeah, it's sad when you see them run I've over. I've got three well. of them in my lunch. Like, right? I do. There you yeah. go. You obviously didn't rescue them. Um, so um, did. One of them, one of them I did, but uh, no, one of them I rescued, but it, but that's not a non-releasable. Um, one of them was rescued by, rescued in inverted commas by a friend, and I, I sort of regret that one. She, um, she probably should have been released. Yeah, okay. And or not rescued. But, so that's um, three wedge tail eagles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can see why you yeah, regret no. that. Yeah. Rainbow lorikeets, so you know nature probably doesn't need them. But um, but yeah, and one and one of them was again because people don't realise they live for quite a long time. Yeah. You know, so people get them, people buy them as pets. One of ours was certainly captive bred, I think, and was probably sold at huge amount of money. You know, people pay $500 for a rainbow lorikeet, yeah, a beautiful looking bird. I just find quite hysterical. Um, they are a beautiful-looking bird, but they are a lot of work. You have to be extremely patient. It's like think about whether you would want to live with, you know, six two-year-olds for the rest of your life because that's what they're like. Love to. That eat, ah. <laughs> it's your dream, isn't it? No. That eat nectar and do squirty poos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and who do not, like they are just so vocal. <clears throat> You know, I've had phone conversations with you where I've had to just ring you back because they're just making too much noise. Or I've had to like you. I've been talking to you and screaming at the birds, in, in interjecting like, "Everybody, go to your room now!" <laughs> you know, he goes to his room. When you <laughs> do. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but so you know, so I think people people do yeah jump into rescue things without being necessarily sure of what they're rescuing them from. 
You know, like are you rescuing something in order to stick it in a cage for the rest of its life and then get bored with it and watch it rolling around its own poo? That's probably not a legitimate rescue. Have you ever rescued an invertebrate? What do you mean? Have you found an injured Bunch invertebrate? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, when we were in Borneo, there was a cicada I have. <laughs> that, had, that had flown into the fan in this, yeah. um, the jungle camp. Oh, the sick. Uh, yeah. The, a cicada. It was a cicada, big, yeah. big, beautiful green one, and it had injured its wings so it couldn't fly. So oh, do yeah. We, do we save it? What? <laughs> We can't. We we you put know they don't live the, for very long, jungle, right? Didn't we? Oh, the, <laughs> this one didn't. They only live for like a week or something. <laughs> well, the funny thing was that um, as you, because we were, it was sort of sitting there on the table for a while, wasn't it? and then you said, "I'm just going to throw this over the like over at, at, at one meter, two meter high balcony yeah. that we were sitting at." And so I'm just going to throw it over onto the grass. As he threw it over, <laughs> it did like something eat it? No, it went. <laughs> oh. and it literally made its own noise as if it was a bomb dropping from the sky oh. it was terrible oh. but really funny I think yeah. it was um, having fun I think it was like yeah, great <laughs> the last flight he'll ever have yeah. we bonded oh it's really hard for me not to tell you this story about but you're going to oh, no I can't people think so badly of me go on oh. you have to now oh absolutely yeah because people are thinking even worse things now. <laughs> no, no, I can't tell you that story. It's a, it, it's about rabbits. Uh, oh, is this a bonfire story? No. Okay. It's, 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 <laughs> oh, hello. It's a, hello. When we were little, I mean, I'm going back to, I was four, so forgive me, but my brother had started school and he'd read a story about Peter Rabbit and um, um, or he'd heard that song, you know, Little Peter Rabbit had a fly upon its nose, so he flipped and it flopped. And he flew away, and I think he thought it meant that the rabbit flew away. And um, but of course, it means that the fly flew away. But we had rabbits, and um, our, my brother's name is Peter, and so my rabbit was called Peter, and his rabbit was called Kristen. So it's all justified. So he far. <laughs> came home from school, and he said, "Did you know they can fly?" And I said, "No, they can't." And. Uh, He's, but I, I'm just saying he was older than me. I was only like three because he was five, so I was three or possibly four, depending on the time of the year. But, um, yeah, but yeah, he said, do you, th- do you know they can fly? And I said, no, they, they can't fly. And he said, yeah, they can. Get your rabbit. <laughs> and we took them up into the treehouse and threw them out the window. And the, Did they fly? Well, yes, they flew down <laughs> and they did make a noise. Like he's made a <laughs> – he threw his out first and it did make – don't laugh, it's a <laughs> traumatic story. And it did make a noise like, you know, wee. <laughs> slightly slightly it. more traumatic uh. than that. And we took that to mean that the rabbit really enjoyed <laughs> that. Look, it loves it, see? Now you throw yours. So over the next couple of years, how many rabbits did you go through? <laughs> no, that was that was the end of those rabbits. Dad had to help them. <laughs> help them. Yeah. And then we had a really interesting chicken soup the next night. <laughs> no, I don't. I like that is just a horror story of my childhood, but um, but it is true. 
we did throw our rabbits out of the treehouse because Whoa. we thought they could fly. That bonfire story, and it's gotten quite dark, hasn't it? Got pretty macabre the whole Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. I'm going to lighten it up after your bonfire. Yeah, story. please do. <laughs> Just a trick for young players if you have a bonfire pile on your property, wildlife will inhabit it, and when you burn the, oh, yeah. the, the, the pile, there could be animals in there. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes me feel a bit better about yeah. that. My, my, my insect hobby side that I'm a little bit into, I'm, I love insects, but just don't have the time to keep them. Um, it is, thank you for acknowledging that it is like very time consuming. Oh, it's not really. It's just I have a lot of other things. No, not No, really. but you know, people, <laughs> like, people don't seem to understand that it's, because it's just a praying mantis, it takes as much husbandry and care as like well, a blue tongue well praying mantis it's a reason that i got into them i think 11 or 12 years ago my me and my wife went to borneo to visit borneo and we went to Your an outside dropper. toilet nine dropper oh, no. <laughs> um but the outside toilet had this beautiful green mantid in it oh. big green and i got it to go on my hand and i had my camera trying to take a picture and it was facing away from me yeah and just the way that that mantid turned its head and just looked at me in the eyes, just made me go, wow. Did you that, know that? That they, um, is amazing. And that was my first day of going, mm-hmm. I need to learn more about them. They're, they're really the cool. They I'm are, really into They mental. are so creepy. Mm. And did you know that they are capable of facial recognition? Are they really? Yeah. So you know how you think, oh, it's looking at me. It's almost like it's trying to work me out. And did that it, looked it. at me. They, they, yeah, someone actually did a PhD. I think it was a PhD. Um on facial recognition in mantids but even before i was aware that someone had actually written a paper on it when you work with mantids you you realize that they really do recognize different people and bond to people differently and um breeding mantids is something i'm really into and i usually do it um you know i was saying before that often i'll breed things in a syndicate so that, you know, it's like not having all your eggs in the same basket kind of thing. And, and that comes in handy because if you, if you stuff everything up and, you know, lose all your offspring or, or someone else in the syndicate loses all of theirs or you end up with all males and they end up with all females, you can, you know, um, redress that balance. So um, that's, that's worked quite well for me. And, you know, and I, I tend to choose people to work with who I know aren't going to just sell them all to a pet shop or yeah. you know who, are, who aren't in it for the financial gain but are passionate about learning from that experience we do the exact same thing with mammals yeah yeah it's it's um it, it's it's a little bit hardcore but i think it's how you have to be anyway so often i find that the people who are really into bugs are kids and so i've got a few kids in my life who um you know some of them aren't kids anymore but they're um you know, there's one one in particular, Ethan, who um, I first met him when he was like 10 or 11. And, um, you know, he was so shy, he could barely speak. Unfortunately, that's changed. But um, so he's 18 now and he's, he's you know, I recognised myself in him straight away and sort of went, oh, wow, this kid's really, he's into it like I was into it, you know. And for my parents, that was, my parents aren't science people. They run theatres. <laughs> So, um, you know, to have me was probably a bit of a challenge, I think. And, um, you know, I was always bringing things home and telling my mother. Like once I told my mother I bought home these ducks and I said to mum, mum said, get those ducks off my swimming pool. 
And I said, Barbara, (laughs) ducks don't poo where they swim. You know, because she said that. They'll shit everywhere. And I said, Barbara, (laughs) ducks don't poo where they swim. That doesn't make ecological sense. Why would ducks poo in the same water that they're feeding in? And I must have given her a really, you know, really good explanation and she said oh yeah okay that that actually does make sense yeah and and so the next morning like I mean it's actually hard to imagine if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes it's hard to imagine how much ducks actually do (laughs) poo where they swim um so they blew up the pool filter and mum and dad had to replace the pool filter because there was so much poo in the swimming pool. It was like a carpet of poo. So my poor mum was always dealing with me, you know, bringing stuff home, and she was forever trying to hook me up with other people who could feed my need to, you know, engage with wildlife. So, And I was very lucky because she worked at a school, and um, there were some people, teachers who worked at that school, Ruth and Arthur Pratt, and um, I will love them to the day I die because they had a lot of animals at, at home and in their house. And they also were presidents of the Gould League here in South Australia for, oh, yeah. for a very long time. And, um, and they were, you know, they were my people, I'm sure. They were, they were pretty quirky. And their whole house, they didn't have kids. They just, they just had animals. They were very much like Prue and John Wamsley, really. And, yep. um, again, they were people I just thought, oh, this, I, I just want to be like this when I grow up, you know. And so from a really young age, they would... Um, make me feel like I was really lucky because when they went away, they would let me come to their house and do all of their plant and animal husbandry. And, um, of course, now I know how hard it is to find somebody to do that when you go away. We don't go away. Um, Yeah, but they'd make me feel like, you know, I was the luckiest person alive because I was allowed to do this. But what I realise now is that that they would have been very hard-pressed to find anybody crazy enough to do that twice a day for the entire school holidays, you know, so they could go to Queensland or whatever. And I'd ride around there on my bike and let myself in with my key because I was very responsible. And I'd feed all their birds and water all their plants and, you know, um, just fantasise that I was, you know, park rangering in a remote area and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) was great. Um, But so now in my life when I meet kids who are who are that passionate I think because I had a lot of mentors and you you guys must have as yeah. well mm-hmm. um um you know so you just Steve you, Steve is my mentor you feel like you have to pay it forward a Poor little Adrian. bit <laughs> but you do don't you, you feel yeah, like you have to absolutely. sort of pay it yeah. forward and yeah. and you, you have this way of kind of sorting out the the real ones from the the fake ones and um yeah so Ethan is this little kid that I met you know, like he came to a couple of my programs that I run and um, he was very shy. I didn't really notice him in the in the workshops because he didn't really speak and his dad was there and, you know, and I thought, oh, he's, he's a bit sweet, but, you know, he, he, he doesn't really talk or anything. And then this kid had posted on the internet that they had an overabundance of herodula muscular, which are these... Um, majuscular, I always say it around the wrong way, um, which are these giant rainforest mantids right and this is in adelaide where they're they're quite tricky to breed and at that point in time i hadn't bred them you know i hadn't managed to breed them or mate them or work out you know even really how to sort of uh, uh, you know if i was keeping them alive it was almost 
by mistake kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I thought, well, this, this kid must be making it up because a lot of kids, you know, make stuff up on, on the internet. But I, I messaged him and it turned out he didn't live too far away and I said, look, you know, if that's what they are, I really think 50 cents is a bit too cheap. So, you know, I'll pop around and we'll have a chat. So I popped around and sure enough, this kid had bred, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, like hundreds of them. And he was doing stuff in his lounge room at 10 or 11 that, you know, that professional breeders weren't doing, that the museum wasn't doing, that I wasn't doing. And I thought, hello, I need to be friends with you. So um, he, he, you know, we, we then became a bit of a, a tight little sort of unit, I suppose, in that nobody else would let him talk about bugs the way I would and nobody else had the patience to, you know, to wait three years for something to hatch or, you know, so um, to this day we're, we're still very good friends. We're off light sheeting tonight, in fact. Um, and he's just written his first paper but our first, what we first bonded over was praying mantises. And it became really clear to me really early on with praying mantises that they could recognise faces because we had this line of praying mantises. We, we sort of worked often in a team where he's very good at mating them. I'm very good at rearing the babies from the moment they hatch because they're, you know, the size of a mosquito. Um, what do you feed them at that point? I breed flies to feed them. So it's often, you know, with a lot of those predatory things, they will eat the right thing at the right time. So, you know, what you feed them as adults, which might be crickets that you can buy from a pet shop, and this is why lots of people don't breed them, um, if you want to hatch them out of an Uthica, it's like the rainbow stag beetles. You've got to be working, you know, two months ahead of when you think they're going to hatch because you've got to have a fly farm and let's say you're going to get 200 mantises um, hatch out of an Uthica or maybe less, maybe more, then you're going to need, you know, maybe a 1,000 flies a day to feed those 200 mantids and then you're going to need something a bit bigger than those flies as they get bigger and then a bit bigger again as they, you know. So it's so you've got to, the food's got to keep up with the size of the, the mantid. So they'll eat a small adult fly, not the maggot? The uh, sometimes they'll eat the maggots, but sometimes the maggots will eat them. Well. You know, so, so some of those like vinegar flies, which are generally the ones that I will grow, uh, the maggots can be pretty mean um sometimes i'll eat pupa it's interesting how they kind of go we used to use oh that's um, a fly pupa i'll eat that we used to use pinhead crickets yeah well some of the mantids are too too small for pinhead crickets yeah some of them yeah i only used to keep the bigger yeah and and pins are actually hard to get at Mm. certain times of the year and they're hard to keep alive and uh you know so once you get them they'll be all right for a couple of days but then a couple of days after that, they're too big. They're too big, yeah. They yeah. Molt, molt pretty quickly. So um, some mantids are really motivated around flying stuff. So there are mantids that, um, you know, that Ethan and I have sort of focused on breeding that come from really remote places and, you know, haven't been captive bred before. And um, you just can't get them to take anything that's crawling. They're they only motivated by flying stuff, which is generally true for mantids they're much more motivated by flying prey um 
so yeah, so so we had these mantids and we called them the daughters of Gloria because the the mother was this praying mantis called Gloria <laughs> and um she hated me but she didn't mind Ethan and it was really obvious that she like if I hand fed her um, I, I mostly don't hand feed my mantids, but she'd been hand fed. And so Ethan went away and said, oh, can you look after Gloria? And I said, oh, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't like me. And um, he said, no, no, she'll be, she'll be all right, she'll be all right. I've had the same thing with a tarantula, actually, um, you know, that he, he was hand feeding and he went, I said, well, you know, I don't want to hand feed your tarantula, it'll have a go at me. No, 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 it never has a go at me. But, of course, the first time I hand fed it, it um, you know, it tried to tag me. So... Gloria was the same, hated me, absolutely hated me. And um, she was a pretty feisty mantid. She actually she actually ate her mate, which, you know, people hear that story about prey mantises that they eat their mates. But you, you don't want them to do that if you've only got one male and a few females. You want that male to survive sub- sub- successive matings because you don't want the, you know, you want him to mate more than once. And it's not obligatory they don't have to eat their mate. Some inverts do, like redbacks do, but um, praying mantises don't have to. It's optional. It's optional. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, if you feed them up and you keep them really well fed and you, you know, play the right music and stuff like that, play them a bit of Barry White, they, um, they you know, you can, you can stop them from eating the mate. But this uh, one time, generally with us, Ethan will do the mating. He's more into it than I am, and he's very good at it. And um, yeah, so this one time we, we're, you know, we're on the phone and we're talking about it with each to each other. And I said, um, so you know, phone sex, yeah, phone sex <laughs> with mantids. Um, I said, now don't, don't, whatever you do, don't let her eat him, because you know he's the only male. I think it was my male and his Gloria. And I said, don't, don't let him. Don't let her eat him because, you know, we've, we've got a couple of other females and we want to mate them all. And um, he said, all right, all right, all right. And um, then he literally had to, like, duck out of the room and he came back in the room and, sure enough, she'd ripped his head off. You had one job, Ethan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was, to be fair, he was probably 12 when this happened. There's no excuse. And, um, no excuse. And um, he he ducked out of the room and, anyway, he... he I get this frantic phone call from him and he says, um, look, okay, I had to leave the room for a minute. I was only gone for a minute. I've come back. She's not only has she ripped his head off, but now he's on the floor. And at that point they hadn't started mating, right? So he'd, he'd been approaching her and she'd um, – it's funny, you can, if, if you understand mentors, they can turn around like you wouldn't really believe and, you know, she'd – ripped his head off and um and was eating it like a lollipop we've actually got photos somewhere um <laughs> and she was eating it like a lollipop and um so he's, he's on the phone saying i don't know what to do what should i do and i said well probably won't get this chance again so i reckon stick him back on <laughs> and see what happens you know because invertebrates don't their brains aren't like ours. They do, they have sort of brain centres throughout their bodies. So, you know, the brain in their head might be important for eating and uh, seeing and, you know, stuff like that, but it's it's not um, necessarily important for engaging with a female. You know, it's that I always like to make that joke about, um, you know, how they say 
men can be guilty of thinking their little brains, not their big brains. That's true for praying mantises. So, um, so he said, I, I don't know if we can do that. I said, yeah, 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 of course we can. Now, if it had been anybody else, if it had been anybody other than a crazy bug lady and a 12-year-old kid, <laughs> A, I don't think it would have occurred to them, and B, you know, if I'd have been talking to a, you know, a peer um, and I'd have said, I'd just put him back on and see what happens, I think they'd have gone, oh, don't be ridiculous, you can't do that, that's... That's not okay. Because <laughs> we, we anthropomorphise these things all the time. Um, but because it was me and a 12-year-old kid, I sort of went, oh, I think we should have a go at that. And the 12-year-old kid went, righto. And so he put her back on, put him back on, sorry. And um, the male proceeded then to engage with the female and copulate with her <laughs> um, for like 12 hours or something. Not just I'm not talking just like five seconds and then he fell to the floor. I'm talking like he then proceeded to mate with her and copulate for the next, you know, I'm saying 12 hours, but probably wasn't that long. It was probably more like six hours. Felt like 12 to him. Probably did. <laughs> Felt like a lifetime. Um, yeah, and he, she continued to eat him. Oh, wow. So she ate him until he was literally a little set of genitalia. Yeah. Just sort of pumping away. And then um, when he'd finished, he fell to the floor and went out and had a cigarette. Yeah. Damn, what you deserved it. That was, that, it was just. <laughs> it, it, I've, I've seen that um, with praying mantids where the female was eating the male. All on, on the way film, down. Not in front. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that might have been Attenborough again. Don't know. I mean, it's, it's well documented that she mm. will eat the male. But I suppose what was really interesting about this was that he, he, he hadn't engaged with her. He'd fallen mm. off onto the floor and, um, and it was the fact that we put him back on and he, he, he finished the job, you yeah. know. Yeah, we believed Good in faith. him. Good faith. Good on your brother. Um, yeah. It was just, you know, it was one of those things, you know, there's a, there's a Nobel Prize in science for, I can't remember what it's called, but... There is one that's for, you know, for things that you learnt that you shouldn't really, that is um, right. you know, that you shouldn't really have done. Yeah. Um, but, but like when, a, but for things that you learnt but you couldn't repeat ethically, you couldn't repeat the experiment. And I mean, ethically, you, you wouldn't rip a mantid's head off in order to see whether he, he would, you know, copulate with a female. So it was just one of those opportunities that we, we had that we... Um, Mm. You know, we decided to pursue, and and what we learnt from that was was pretty outrageous. But in the meantime, not only did Gloria demonstrate over and over and over again that she was capable of facial recognition, um, I, I've noticed that with lots of praying mantids, people often say to me, "Oh, there's a praying mantis in my garden." And it's always there when I water the plants. It always comes out and says hello. But as soon as I call the kids and the kids come out. It disappears. Mm. And so the kids don't believe me. They don't believe it's there. And I, you can, facial recognition accounts for that. It's going, oh, well, you're the nice lady with the hose who gives me a bit of a spray and doesn't try to pick me up and put me in a jar. And they're the noisy humans that come out and try to catch me. Don't want to know about them. Happy to hang out with you. There's certainly mm. something strange when they turn and look at you in your eyes. Oh, they're, they're freaky. Yeah. I. I shouldn't say this is this is irrelevant, but I'm going to put it out there. The scaredest I've ever been. One night, Tam had gone out 
um, to the city. And she'd come back in, she'd snuck in, didn't want to wake me up. The room was dark. You were scared she, she was, was going to get picked up by someone else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no. But she, <laughs> she, was, oh, she was bent over and there was a silhouette of it and she was like taking off her shoes or something. And her form... I don't know. I, I'd, I'd been woken up. Hang on, are we talking this... about Tam now? Or are we yeah, talking... yeah, we're talking about Tam. <laughs> and she was in the room, and like I, I was asleep, and I woke up, and there's a silhouette. To me, it looked like a praying, a praying mantis, praying mantis monster alien. She was taking off her shoes. She was crouched over. Her head peered towards me, and it was like that angular praying mantis head. And I was terrified. I was screaming. I was like, ah, 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 and I was kicking away until she's like, babe, babe, it's me, it's me, it's me. It's the most scared I've ever been. Can't believe I just said that. But anyway, um. I can't believe you just said that on like international. Well, for, for the record, podcast. I can't believe you just said that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because like, if you if you knew Tam, she's. Terrifying. Most people would be pretty happy to be woken up by her in the middle of the night, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, and just before you drop the word Uthika, now that's that's the... Uh, the egg sack or egg case of a praying mantis, which most people would have seen. They really like to uh, stick them onto screen doors and walls. They look like a little, like a a little blob of spray foam. foam. Yeah, yeah, yeah spray that's foam. exactly how mm. I describe them. And why don't you hand feed yours? You said you don't like to hand feed them, like tong feed or something. Yeah, I just don't have time. Okay. Really? Because I'll sometimes grab a cricket if I see a wild one. I'll feed a wild one because it's fun because they're awesome. Sometimes I hand feed them if I'm, you know, like if I've got one, if I'm at a school and I've got one sitting on top of its enclosure and I, um, you know, I want to give it something to eat so it'll stay there but I don't want the cricket to hop off around the kindy room, I'll um, hand feed them then but. Yeah, it takes a bit of time if you've got lots of them. It takes a bit of time to yes. hand feed. What are some of the biggest ones? How big can these praying mantis get? Uh, well, the Horodula, in Australia, the Horodula are a genus of fairly big mantids, with almost without exception. They're, you know, they're like the Kung Fu Panda mantid. Anything that can eat a vertebrate? Yep, Horodula could probably eat a small vertebrate, a big Horodula could eat a small vertebrate, like, you know, baby mouse or maybe a baby reptile, something like that. Um, there are some... Uh, there's, there's one Archimantis monstrosa, which gets pretty big. There. So that's one of the grass mantids, like one of the longer, thin mantids. That gets pretty big, and I guess that could take a small vertebrate. There are people who... Um, you know, like to feed weird things to stuff. I'm sure they've probably tried feeding pinky mice and stuff to mantids, but I don't really see the point. Um, I have fed, you know, if I... I breed a lot of big moths, like um, emperor gum moths and stuff like that. You would have seen the caterpillars. They're great big green. They're like big, fat, spiky green sausages. And... um, I've sometimes when they're about to pupate, they wander a bit. And if I've got heaps of them, like sometimes I have hundreds of them. So when I have hundreds of them, um, it's hard to contain them, you know, in a enclosure. They just, they need a lot of room and they need to wander on branches and the branches take up a lot of room. And so um, sometimes I just have them relatively free range in the bathroom 
you know, I have buckets of um, cut brows, like leaves and stuff, and just have them, I have heaps of them. And um, and that's okay when they're young, they'll stay on the leaves, but when they're ready to pupate, they'll, they'll wander off a bit. And so occasionally, I, I you know, I have been um, guilty of treading on one if I, you know, go, go into the bathroom and uh, we don't have a lot of visitors. Um, but if I go into the bathroom, I've, I've, I've trodden on one. And once I did feed one to a horodula because I, I, you know, I knew that it wasn't going to, I'd trodden on it, wasn't going to survive. There was no way it was going to pupate. It was just going to die. And it seemed like a lot of, lot of meat to waste. And it was probably twice the size of the horodula. Like, you know, it was big. It was really big. And I fed that. I just thought, oh, I wonder if it'll eat it. And I put it in the enclosure with the horodula. And I came back in like, oh, not, not that much time, you know, like 15 minutes. And the horodula had eaten the whole entire thing. I was blown away at how how much it ate. And then it didn't eat again for weeks. Laid two Uthikas in that time. And it didn't eat again, you know, it really didn't eat much again for the rest of its life. But, it, yeah, it ate that whole entire thing. So they're quite advantageous feeders, you know. Like I think if you – I doubt very much that they would go out of their way to catch a baby mouse. Or a lizard or something. Or a lizard or something. Oh, maybe a, maybe a lizard, you know, because when you, when you go out at night, you, you, you see little geckos and things like that roaming through the trees, Go out, go out at night with a torch and – it changes your whole view of, you know, what geckos do and how they behave. And so I guess it, it wouldn't surprise me if if a mantid would take a gecko. But mm. mostly they're re- relatively diurnal, I think, in their hunting. So that often those two things wouldn't cross over much. Mm. You know, when the mantid's out hunting for flying insects at dawn or dusk, or, but, but it's unlikely to be doing that in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, often those those sort of things that people want to feed them are not, not out and about at that time anyway. So, okay. yeah. um, I need to ask you about the great Australian snail race. Yeah, yeah. That's a thing now. Controversial. That's happening. It's happening now. It did happen, yeah, during, during the Fringe. Uh, um, a mate of mine who runs Holden Street Theatres, her kids um, had... I'd taken my snail racing to their osh and she, didn't, she actually didn't realise it was me. Um, so, you know, she comes from a theatre family and I come from a theatre family. And um, so we, we knew of each other, but we, we, we hadn't had a lot to do with each other. And, um, yeah, she, her, her kids had been at, been at their OSH a few times. It's one of the OSHs I go to a bit and they'd um, done this snail racing. And I, I've been racing snails for years and decorating them. <laughs> Like with, as, as you know, as in, you've seen them. As in you've raced the same snail for years. It's not finished yet or? Yeah. No, no. I mean, I mean when I first started racing snails, I it sort of just. sound like the type of words that would go together, does it? Snail and race. I just thought it would be a cool thing to do, right? Like, I, you know, because when you're kids, every, surely everybody races snails when they're kids. Some ridiculous. We used to country. race yabbies and all kinds of stuff. But, um, yeah, so so I thought, oh, that, that would be cool to, to race snails because kids could learn things about snails, like, you know, are the big ones faster than the little ones? Is it just, you know, a snail having a good day that's the fastest? Like, you know, all of that stuff is really interesting if you're five. Are they drug tested? You don't want any, like... No, they're not. They're not. It's a, okay. it's, 
you know. Anything goes. Anything goes. The wild and woolly days um, of snow racing. ridiculous country in the world would do that quite often, snow racing. It, it did the start, English. Oh, yeah. 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 There we go. <laughs> it's your people. There we go. The plot thickens. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so it turns out that there's this um, this little group in Devon, I think, they, that they are. That explains it. Um, does it? <laughs> and um, they... Um, they, so I, I Googled it because I thought, well, surely I can't be the first person to have thought of racing snails. You know, I'm, I'm sure I've heard of it before. Um, so I Googled it to discover that there is actually an international snail racing federation. And, um, and there's like a, you know, there's a, um, an official track an official track size and there's also a world record. So I've been racing them for, you know, probably Oh, close to 10 years I think and and I decorate them I've got all these in, insane kind of ways of decorating them which you know if people go to my Facebook page which is um bugs and slugs the word bugs the letter n and the word slugs there are pictures of highly decorated snails does that slow them down absolutely oh, yep yep okay, if it depends on what you do but the it's like a um like a handicap on a Horse. You so you would decorate to... everyone else's to the height and leave yeah, yours and leave just mine. with a little tiny star. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You got it. The weight. <laughs> the, the weight does slow them down for sure. Yep, definitely. That's one thing we've discovered. Um, but yeah, when I googled it, I thought, oh, there's an international snail racing federation. Now I didn't worry too much about that because I wasn't intending to, you know. Um, do it in an, in an official capacity. It's just one of the things kids can do when we take bugs to their school or their kindy. And um, anyway, then Martha, her kids had come home from their Rosh about a year ago and gone, oh, we've raced snails and we love it, you know, and, they, and that had started a bit of a thing in their family. And so she thought, oh, I reckon I could, you know, during the fringe when the theatre's pretty empty, maybe that would be a great thing to do for the kids' day. So she quite, quite independently, she... Um, decided she'd have this great Australian snail race. And she she did exactly what I did. She Googled it and discovered there's a federation and a world record. And so she wrote to them. Now, I, I'd never done that. I'd just race them, you know, as, as you know, because you've seen me do it at science shows for, snail for, for, for years. Unsanctified <laughs> snail racing. Yes, that's hysterical. I'm going to use that. Um <laughs> So anyway, she, she wanted it to be, you know, sanctioned by the International Snail Racing Federation. So she wrote to them and got their go-ahead and um, and then she sort of realised, oh, hang on, snails are living things and I've got to keep them alive and I'm running a theatre in the fringe that is, you know, for anyone who does, doesn't know if you're in Adelaide, Holden Street Theatres, which is a really busy little, great little venue uh, down in Holden Street in um, Hindmarsh. Um, and it's run by Martha Lott and she, you know, she's, she's, she's a bit of a crazy lady as well. And, um, so she contacted me and went, I I might need a bit of help. I might've sort of gotten in, (laughs) I might've dug a deeper hole than I planned to dig here. This is moving too fast for me. It's moving Ah. too fast for me because it was getting lots of publicity. Like she'd put out a press release and people were ringing going, we want to see these snails. (laughs) So she rang me and said, oh, you know, I, I might need a bit of help. And. I said, I'm in, I'm, I'm totally in, you know, like I'm just, she said, everyone I speak to says, I've got to speak to Chris from Bugs and Slugs. And I've just realized that you're, you know, you're, you're, I know you. And I said, yeah, you know, because a lot of people from the theater world 
um, know me from theatre, but they don't realise what my day job is, you know. And um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so so anyway, we ended up teaming up and, and it was bigger than Ben-Hur. Like we got, we got, you know, we got the front page of two different papers. We got, I felt a bit bad because, you know, during the fringe people are clamouring for publicity and this snail race got all this publicity. <laughs> and it was really successful. We had lots of, lots of people turn up and we... Um, we involved a place called Careship Kurong, which is a snail farm at Canalpin. I know the lady who runs it. Yeah, Claudia. Um, I don't know her name, but I see her around a lot of gigs. Yeah. Claudia, yes. Yeah, she, yeah, she grows them for food. She's beautiful. Um, well, what she really does, I think that's kind of secondary, what she really does is run a program for people with dementia. Oh, okay. So the whole snail farm, the focus of it is helping people with dementia, yeah. um, have repetitive activities outside that are you know good for them that involve good food good you know good um clean air that sort of thing and and they're based in Canalpin, which you know if you've got dementia in a in a rural town um sorry i have to move on my chair and it's going to make fart sounds um (laughs) so that was the chair yeah sure (laughs) um yeah so if you you know if you if you've got dementia in a rural community what is there for you? Mm. There's probably not a nursing home within, you know, reasonable distance of your family. There's probably not a, it's probably not, um, you know, services that you would expect to to get access to if you were living in the city. And um, a lot of dementia services in rural communities rely on the goodness of other people in your community. So, you know, I, I, I kind of thought that was really cool. And so did Martha. So we, um, so... Claudia actually provided some snails for us um, and we let the kids decorate them and then if they wanted to, they could buy their snail and keep it. They could just use one for free and they could still decorate it or whatever. But if they wanted to take it home, which of course most of them did, um, or at least in the first week most of them did and then they really cottoned on to the idea that, hang on, we can just go and find a snail in our garden. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that the, we raised a bit of money for Keshit Kurong and, um, yeah, and raced these snails. But I, I predicted that our snails in Australia would be faster than the British snails. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, I sent them an email and said, oh, by the way, I think our... Snails are going to probably be a bit faster than yours because I've been racing them for a long time. And, you know, the world record was, I think, two minutes and 20 seconds. And I've had snails regularly just smash, smash that record. You know, it's over 13 inches. They're way less slower. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're way less slower. And, um, and I've had them really, really beat that record. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm talking a minute and a half. Whoa. You know, minute 40 seconds. That's not unusual. And um, and because I've got five racetracks and, you know, when we go to a school, sometimes um, you can do just that program, you can just do snail racing. But even if we go with all our bugs, that's always a component of it. So, um, and sometimes at my school, I've got a school where I work at every week, one day every week, and um, they just kind of let me do whatever I think is cool. And so sometimes the end of term I'll bring the snail racetracks and the kids will have the whole school out at lunchtime racing snails. So can you use any species of snail? No, not according to the official, according to the official, you know, um, federation, you can only use the the European snail. 
Okay, the typical garden snail yeah, size yeah. of an Australian 26 Which is, used to be helix asperser and now it's or aspersum and now it's something else I can't remember. Could you keep change those genus, giant, like they panda snails? Yeah, I do. I keep I keep Hedleyella falconeri, which is a giant panda snail. I keep a few native snails. Because they'd have to blitz it, wouldn't they? Because they'd just uh, a couple of snail steps. No, and, no not necessarily. No. Not necessarily. This is what I've discovered about snails. They're like racehorses. You get fast ones and you get slow ones. So you can have a really big slow one and a really little fast one. Just depends on... And, and one that's slow one day can be fast the next day. Although that's less likely. We just liken snails to racehorses. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I like that. And there's a degree of genetics involved as well. And they... Yeah, so they... they um, a snail stud. <laughs> well, don't start me. There's... there's yeah, they're very interesting snails. I won't, I won't, I won't have fun. I won't have uh, fun and games around snails. There. We had an opportunity to stop it at Roadkill, but we kept going. <laughs> I could see an opportunity That's to sell paraphernalia. Good. I can imagine caps with on the peak of the cap, you got the snail eyes sticking up. There is, um, there is, there is someone sort of who uh, Chloe, her name is. I think you've probably communed with her sometimes on Facebook. Um, and she does dress them up and put costumes on them and stuff like that. But I'm more into decorating the shells. I don't like to kind of add spoilers and things like that to them. But Spoilers? Know. Yeah. For wind resistance? And yeah. yeah. Keep it low to the um, ground? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they're... they're it's, possible to, it's possible to do some really highly decorative snails. I'm thinking of paraphernalia like T-shirts and snail. Not hats for the snail, but you could sell hats to people. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there'd be a lot of money in that. Mainly because snails don't need a hat, do they? Uh, No, Mm. because they can just go up into their house, can't they? Yeah. I I didn't know this, but... Technically, it's a shell. A shell? Is that what it is? I don't think they have a lounge room in there. (laughs) I've seen pictures, surely, where they've got little windows and doors. Was that not... No? (laughs) Remembering. Um, But I have had... uh, Sometimes in kindies, I have to reiterate strongly that you can't take their shells off well yeah well done i learned the other day that there are species of snails that don't have shells well there's a there's a, a oh. they're all snails right so technically a, you know they're all gastropod mollusks so a slug is a gastropod mollusk a, there's so there's a slugs then there's snails and then kind of in between is this thing called a semi-slug, or a, I, I like to call them snugs. Okay. And they look like, and these are terrestrial gastropods. So in a marine environment, it's a little bit different. But um, in the terrestrial environment, there's a, a, a slug, which is a gastropod, a snail, which is a gastropod, and then a semi-slug or a snug, which mm, it's not that it doesn't have a shell. Its shell is... Uh, really paper thin and it's only kind of a it's like the difference between a cap and a you know a skull cap and a top hat it's like a just a little like a little yeah, we saw one curved there. fingernail and then that the semi-slug also then has a mantle which is like f- a fleshy sort of you know m- mantle of of flesh that comes up and kind of covers that shell. So it looks like it doesn't have a shell. It looks like it's just got a, a soft blob of, you know, flesh on top. But it, it technically it does have a shell. I mean, technically slugs have a shell. 
but it's tiny. It's like a tiny little fingernail just behind there. Mm. the back of their head and some of them you can some of them it's a little bit bigger than that and you can sort of see a little shiny patch but yeah so so that's true and in a marine environment of course where the snails rule um interestingly what we call a sea slug is not a gastropod, a, a gastropod. it's not even a mollusk it's mm. a, a nudibranch so it's, a, so it's a different... Are they the ones I heard about as a species of... said to me as a marine slug? Actually, it could be a mollusk. I could be making that up. Okay. But it's not a gastropod. It was something... And it, and, it would, and it had a brain. And it would use its brain to locate a spot to live. And then it would find a spot to live. And kind of make a little And then it would eat its brain. Because it doesn't need its eat brain its anymore. Because brains are hard work. Brains use a lot of energy. Yeah, That's true. why we eat like 20 meals a day or whatever we eat humans. But... Um, and it would eat its brain, and it would just sit there and just absorb food. So is that the ultimate, just to sit there and absorb food, not, not bother thinking? What oh, I think there's lots of things that don't have a brain. Less stressful. Less stressful. Much less I mean, stressful. you think about things like um, jellyfish and, again, the cnidarian mostly, like jellyfish and sea anemones and stuff like that. Um, some of them are effectively immortal I know. Settle down. <laughs> some of them are effectively immortal in that they don't actually have, um, you know, we can't determine that there's a, well, we can sort of determine a beginning to their life often, but not, not necessarily an end in that they, you know, they have different reproductive strategies. So they're not, they're not um, limited to one reproductive strategy. So they might reproduce asexually in a number of different ways so um yeah sorry so um so if you can imagine that uh, a sea anemone might be able to reproduce sexually by like producing spores in the water that then form some sort of gamete or you know some sort of i don't know what the terms are because i haven't um, thought about it for a long time but um yeah, so they might produce some sort of like little baby sea anemone that, you know, starts out as a little blob of jelly on a rock or, you know, or even starts out as a free-floating thing in the water that then has to lodge on a uh, hard surface. Um, then you've got other forms of reproduction, like the same animal might also be able to reproduce by budding off and producing like a little, you know, clone of itself. Like a plant. Like mm, some plants do. Yeah. Like um, I used to be, I, I think I've mentioned I used to be quite interested in marine ecology and, and was quite interested in marine invertebrates and intertidal marine invertebrates. And um, I, I kept big tanks of marine invertebrates that I kept as uh, habitat tanks. So rather than have a filter in them, they, they were the filter. And um, in doing that, I got to see lots of sea anemones um you know like i, I realized very quickly that um the difference between sea anemones and jellyfish is is not not very much in fact it seems to me that maybe some sea anemones some things that and and i you know somebody who knows about this stuff will will be able to correct me i'm sure they will but um it seems to me that maybe there are sea anemones that really are jellyfish maybe like baby jellyfish, <laughs> and that they have like a part of their life cycle that is kind of anemone-ish. 
which won't make sense to anyone if you don't understand what I'm talking about. But if you if you care about jellyfish, you'll, you'll go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I, I don't uh, that's not my personal passion, but it just seems to me watching them in a tank that um, there are sea anemones that, that they just do weird things. Like you have to kind of see it to believe it. So the other thing is we have this idea that sea anemones are sessile, you know, that they don't move, that they're stuck by their foot to a rock and they don't move but they do move well they they fully move so they and this is what leads me to this um picture in my head is that um you know so sea anemones will you know like one day let's say you put one in your tank and it's only like you know a centimeter high like you pick up a bit of rock and you don't realize it but you, you pick up a bit of rock and you put it in your tank and you go oh didn't realize there's a sea anemone on that rock right and uh, it's tiny. But then suddenly the next day, it'll be enormous. <laughs> and you just look at it and go, no, no, that can't be the same sea anemone. So it's almost like they can inflate and deflate themselves to, to be much bigger, you know, or much smaller. So that's the first thing. The other thing they can do is they can sort of like, if you can imagine a sea anemone is like a little truffula tree, right, with um, wavy tentacles at the top and then a stalk and then a foot right um so they can they're not sessile so what they can do is they can move um now they can possibly slide there are possibly some that can slide but what i've seen them do is um bend over so that their tentacles are touching the rock that they're sitting on right and then then they sort of adhere to the rock and then they pop their foot off the rock ah. and they kind of do this cartwheel and move like that right so the next day they're in a completely different part of the rock okay that's that's not that exciting that's like oh yeah okay fair enough so i've seen that happen i know they can do that i've, I've sat there and watched them you know, i'm capable of um great sedentary <laughs> behavior i think that's why i'm suited to bugs and slugs i can sit there and watch them for days and not realize that you know time has eluded me for you know oh, i was meant to be at a school yesterday um yeah so i've seen that happen but the other thing that happens is when they do that when they roll over and move like that and the next day you go like hang on you were there yesterday and now you're there how did that happen um they leave behind little bits of i want to say guzzy like little bits of guzzy flesh stuck on the rock and those little bits of goosey flesh become new sea anemones yeah, okay and like they'll be like a little they'll leave behind this little forest of sea anemones it's bizarre and there are other there are other ways they can reproduce as well but i can't remember what they are i think i think they can divide some of them can divide like, like this is all the same species, right? So I, th I, I think I could be, I could be making this up, but I don't think so. I think I'm, I'm remembering this from the recesses of my, my brain, but I'm pretty sure there are some that can literally split in two and become two sea anemones. Well, that happens with the planarians. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can chop it them in certainly four does. Sections and each section will grow will into grow. a whole new animal. Yeah. He means, when he says planarians, he means like these weird kind of flatworms. flatwormy things that we get up in the hills that people ask you about all the time, don't they? 
They would even ask you about it. They would go like, oh, I've found these yellow lychee things under a rock. What are they? Yeah. The the yellow lychee things. You would get you would get them here. Yeah, yeah you would get them here. Really. They would be common. Yeah. yeah, and they live for a really long time. And I think they, um, yeah. So the sea anemones, crazy. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. That yeah, was, that's all right. That was fun. No notes at all in front of Chris. All no, that just popped no. out of her brain. I did Google though while you were talking to me. I did Google uh, whether nudibranchs are mollusks, and they are. So that's good to clear that up. It's cool. good to know. I just couldn't remember. And then I got thinking about it and I thought, oh, hang on, no, actually, I think they are mollusks, but they're not gastropods. Go to our website, guys. It's going to be a test on everything that was just said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. like how much of this was made up and how much of it is actually able to be supported by factual evidence. I, I reckon we're going to get a good seven or eight minute podcast out of this. <laughs> once, we, once it's edited, it'll be a solid, really good nut. A solid, a solid five minutes. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Right. And thanks for listening, guys.